0: If you stop to listen, you can hear their hearts beating loud. Can't keep those California Indians down. Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, the U.S. government's Title 42 program and how it's being used to illegally deport indigenous and non-indigenous asylees and political refugees. The recent North American Leaders Summit held in Mexico City this past January 9th and 10th. Plus more and how it impacts indigenous and non-indigenous peoples migrating to the United States. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon bright the today on American Indian Airwaves I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Dr. Roberto Hernandez. He's associate professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at San Diego State University. He's actively engaged community-based researcher scholar teacher, writer, and activist. His research and publications focus on the intersections of colonial and border violence, the geopolitics of knowledge and cultural production, decolonial political theory, social movements, hemispheric indigeneity, masculinity, and comparative border studies. He is the author of Coloniality of the U.S.-Mexico Border, Power, Violence, And the decolonial imperative. Dr. Hernandez joins us for the hour to discuss several crucial issues including the recent events of indigenous and non-indigenous peoples that are either seeking asylum or political refugee status, migrating into the United States along the U.S. colonial border in the south, He provides us an update of the North American Leaders Summit that was held this past January 9th and 10th and how it impacts Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And he provides us an update on how the AMLO-Biden meetings signal a red flag to Indigenous peoples and land and water protectors. He joins us to discuss the federal Title 42 program and how it is used as a colonial tool for deportation and managing migratory populations into the United States, and how the detention centers are institutions and locations of state violence violating indigenous and non-indigenous people's rights and more. We start the interview with his response on President Joe Biden's recent visit. To El Paso, Texas, and the Bridge of Americas. First of all, uh, you know this
1: uh, visit by President Joe Biden in some ways has been long overdue. Uh, you know, it should be expected of a uh, president to to give some lip service and and presence on the on the border. Um, you know, he's been hounded by the Republicans for not uh, visiting the border sooner. Uh, but what, what we also need to not lose sight of is that whether Republican or Democrat, one of the problems with uh, the border is not that there's a border crisis, but that there's a crisis in being realistic about what's happening and actually taking the lead from border communities who, mm-hmm. uh, who on a day-to-day basis, are the ones uh, most directly impacted and engaged with, with uh, these dynamics of uh, migrations, which are themselves, you know, these uh, based on displacement of largely indigenous people in the south. Uh, so, so part of the issue is also um, that what is often portrayed as comprehensive immigration reform uh, that we haven't really had in in, in decades. Uh, but nevertheless, this pretension to comprehension, comprehensive immigration reform, has always hinged on two main uh anchors if you will one being pathways to citizenship and the other one being border security but uh precedent after precedent we've seen the border security part that has been uh definitely strengthened but yet um you know a lot of back and forth first with daca and and now with uh title 42 and yet we don't see see much results and for all the claims to the need for more border security in exchange for pathway to citizenship, we've been seeing the strengthening of the border. Um, you know, whether it was going back to the uh, 90s and 93, 94 with several operations, and 2001 mm-hmm. after 9 11, we get another major reinforcing of the border. Uh, we get Secure Fence Act years later. Uh, so the border has been secured. And the border has been increasingly strengthened, and yet there's been no dividend on the on the path to citizenship side. Instead, has been disentanglement with DACA and and now in the context of these uh, asylum seekers, uh, you know, this um, really cat and mouse game with Title Forty Two. Which, although uh, Trump era policies is definitely. Still being embraced, and you know, given some uh, lukewarm uh, critiques from the Biden administration, but nevertheless, the courts have kept kept it in in place. So, um, I think this this is a backdrop then for for the visit to the North American Summit, right? And and when President Biden meets with Mexico's President uh, Andres Lopez uh, Obrador. Uh, That there's this longer context of border enforcement, uh, border security, but also I think one thing that we don't get too much in it for an American audience is that tied to the border are also other uh, mega projects within mexico mm-hmm. most specifically um, the trans Isthmus corridor in uh, that cuts across indigenous communities in oaxaca mm-hmm. and the increasing militarization of mexico's mm-hmm. national guard mm-hmm. both of which are really combining to to be part of a broader package deal of u.s mexico border security Really being relocated down to not only the southern border of Mexico with Guatemala uh, as a first line of defense for the U.S., but this trans isthmus corridor that, while displacing indigenous Oaxacan communities, Zapotecos, Mixtecos, Triquis, and others, uh, will also form a new kind of border defense uh so so what we have as far as uh, the dealings between US and Mexico for as much as there's still this idea that AMLO that Mexico's president is is of a uh, leftist orientation I mean, in many ways he's been giving a lot of lip service to progressives but has really been uh reinforcing the border on on behalf of the US both in with Guatemala and with this new mega-project that is really being led by the National Guard, uh, which itself was supposed to be formed to deal with corruption and drug trafficking, but has really been mobilized primarily uh, against indigenous communities uh, uh, to safeguard uh, these mega-projects of death as the Zapatistas have uh, been referring to them. Uh, the Transism Corridor and the Maya Train as the two primary examples, but uh, other, other projects as well.
0: Thank you, Roberto, for uh, that response. And you talked about the militarization of Mexico's National Guard and and also the cartels. I was curious the role that they play. And I don't mean just narco-traffickers, but cartels' primary revenue source is the trafficking of U.S. military weaponry, human trafficking, as well as uh, the trafficking of drugs or narco-trafficking. So how does uh, what is the role of uh, the cartels, and how do they escalate and compound the violence directed at indigenous and non-indigenous migrants uh, traveling to the United States?
1: Well, they've definitely uh, diversified their portfolios, if you will, right? So it's no longer just uh, uh, drugs, but uh, but you're right. I mean we have a hands on. Uh, there has been in, in weapon uh, bringing weapons down from the U.S. I mean, uh, we need to be clear too that those weapons are tra- are traveling south, right? It's not just uh, drugs and and humans traveling north, but uh, these weapons that are traveling south. And in many ways, the cartels uh, serve as an unofficial wing of of these major developments, right? Because they're. Mm-hmm also trying to control territory they're also trying to knowing that these investments are coming knowing that these mega projects then to be introduced into some of these uh, very rural mountainous areas uh, they want to control territory to then also be able to profit off of those developments so um, you know i i I wouldn't think it was as far-fetched even to conceive of these cartels as kind of like the frontiersmen, if you will, thinking of the processes in the U.S. with manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. These are the, the first line of defense, the first entry point into indigenous territories that uh, not only displace and disorganize and disrupt the daily life and uh, bring fear into people's lives, drive them from their own land for controlled territory to then cut the deals with the developers and profit off of that, uh, so they're very much, you know, um, if not explicitly in line with the development projects, uh, definitely a in, inadvertent kind of precursor to to these development projects. So they do kind of coincide in many ways and. And, I mean, one thing we've been highlighting, in fact, here at the uh, Centro Cultural de la Raza, our current exhibit for um, uh, Enero Zapatista, which is a month-long series of Zapatista-related events, Mm. is an art exhibit highlighting the uh, over 100 um, land and water defenders that... Mm -hmm. have been killed, and more specifically, an increase in the killing of indigenous uh, land and and water protectors under this current regime, uh, this AMLO uh, presidency, which again has been one that has made very superficial claims to being in support of indigenous communities, all the while increasing the violence, uh, both direct and and indirect through, through cartels and paramilitary forces in, in a lot of Native communities.
0: And is it fair to say in, you know, that the systemic violence is an impetus for people to migrate to, through Mexico and, and to the United States? And is this a, a major contributory factor to the migratory population that we're, we're experiencing right now?
1: it It has historically although I would say there's been two types of responses on the one hand uh you know you have had more uh displacement and, and migration um uh, previously, but increasingly with, at least within the mexican context uh especially with the rise of the the zapatista supported um national indigenous congress, you increasingly have a lot of um communities organizing themselves and arming themselves and uh taking uh taking on the work of being you know um these armed community patrols that have at some level tried to fend off the cartels fend off the state uh you know uh, stand their ground and defend their communities but then uh again i mean they're up against the odds here and and this is is uh, also one of the reasons why there's been more deaths. So Mexican migration has, on on a overall picture, has somewhat declined because there has been an increase in people staying put and defending their territories. Uh, but uh, this is why most of the recent migrants that we're seeing are coming less from Mexico and more from. Uh, places like Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, where you have similar processes going on, right, in terms of, uh, the types of attacks on communities and displacement, uh, disruptions of not only local economies, but, uh, political uh, disorder. In the case of,
0: uh,
1: uh, Honduras, more specifically, uh, going back to 2010 and a U.S. sponsored coup, uh, that brought down the, the uh, then uh, democratically elected president.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. Roberto Hernandez. He's providing us a detailed update on the human rights violations committed by the United States government and other nation states on indigenous and non-indigenous peoples migrating into the United States along the U.S.-Mexico border who are seeking either asylum or political refugee status. And now back to the interview. Um, There's been some shifts now with a a new um, uh, woman president that was recently
1: elected, and her name escapes me right now. Um, so perhaps a, a brighter turn in Honduras, but uh, but at least the last decade uh, has been, you know, well, part and parcel of this systemic violence that that has been the reason why we have mostly uh, Hondurans and Guatemalans and Salvadorians on our on our southern border and to a lesser extent, folks from uh, Nicaragua as well.
0: You mentioned Honduras, Nicaragua, and and I know uh, in the past uh, we've talked about indigenous peoples from uh, Guatemala, and I was wondering if, um, just based on what you're sharing with us, how much of um, uh, additional mega projects, if you will, that have gone on and are going on in, in the countries that you've mentioned, how much of that contributes to um, creating political refugees, and then, and also, what role does the climate crisis play in this?
1: Yeah, I mean, in in some of these Central American countries, right, the the projects have been uh, um, hydroelectric plants on the one hand, uh, mining projects, and and I mean, at the root of this, right, is the unwillingness to recognize that. More and more of this type of resource extraction is precisely what's creating the uh, climate crisis. Right, that uh, changes in weather are creating uninhabitable situations for various regions. You know, the uh, rivers overflowing, de- destroying communities. I mean, these. So yes, yeah, not it's not stretched to to recognize that these. Uh, refugees are as much uh climate refugees as they are uh, as they are political and economic refugees uh these these dynamics uh go hand in hand and uh, and and you're seeing it uh, you know across uh, uh central america but uh in in the case of um central america i mean they've also been fairly violent in terms of the types of of attacks that uh have have uh, preceded the uh, entry entering into the communities to try to develop these projects. Now they've been a little bit more unorganized and um, less coherent or cohesive, if you will, than in Mexico, where in Mexico it's it's specifically the the newly formed National Guard that that has um, done it in a much more systematic way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, these projects run the gamut across uh, Central America.
0: Yeah, I was just wondering, when we talk about uh, refugees, economic, political refugees, and kind of coming back to um, the conversation about Title 42, I was wondering if we could maybe unpack that uh, a little bit further in the context of of human rights, right? So sorry for our listeners, um, they certainly, if they're familiar with ma- American mass media performance, hear about uh, how title what Title 42 is, but maybe you could unpack what that is uh, for our listeners, and then what does that mean in the context of human rights law and, like, refugee uh, status?
1: Yeah, yeah well, uh, Title 42 was uh, provisions that were first uh, introduced uh, in the context, or most recent context, of uh, uh, COVID as a public health measure that would, uh, rather than simply allow asylum seekers and refugees into the country, would um, have them, in essence, be registered and then wait in Mexico until their numbers called if you will until their case can be heard now the problem with this is that it it goes completely against uh internationally recognized uh asylum seeking standards right in that uh one when someone is migrating not not as a regular migrant but as a refugee or asylum seeker uh, the whole point of uh, international law uh, is that they are supposed to be allowed into the country seeking refuge right it's not like wait outside and we'll decide it will give you refuge right the, the point is that these are time sensitive uh many many in many cases life and death situations for for, for many of these people and and to have them go through this extra hurdle of staying in a uh, another country that itself is susceptible to violence and can you know be very dangerous in and of itself uh the folks are being forced to wait now the 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 irony of, of this like you know it still like doesn't um surprise me though that uh, for as much as uh, this was a measure that was introduced in the context of the pandemic. You know, you have right wing anti vaxxers that are, uh, you know, die hard against all types of COVID restrictions within the US, yet here, the most expensive COVID restriction that we have, and, and not a word from these uh, anti vaxxers and uh, COVID. Uh, what would you call it, non-believers? I don't know what the proper word would be. Uh, yet yet, Title 42 is, is never really seen in the light of a COVID restriction when that's precisely the justification that was used when it was first
0: introduced. The other uh, aspect of Title 42 is, uh, and I think you are alluding to this in your response, is that uh, the notion of that thir- uh, safe third policy, which requires migrants, right, to apply for asylum in a country through which they transit, right, uh, through. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak to that and how that um, undermines uh, their their rights that they have uh, as refugees.
1: Uh, yeah, so the, the idea of, uh, again, applying in a third country when, In the case of uh these uh migrants coming from central america uh for the most part that would mean mexico right and and again when when the situation is itself fairly unstable in mexico uh it really just adds another uh, obstacle or hurdle Uh, but more than anything it's um and the word escapes me now but it's um in, it's almost like outsourcing border management to mm. Mexico writ large. Gotcha. Uh, that's, that's really, I think, uh, uh, one way that that, uh, despite even, you know, um, los, uh, pretty strongly word worded critiques of the US's relationship to Mexico, nevertheless, uh, what is what's happening in in real practical terms, mm. is this outsourcing of um, managing this entire uh, refugee—I I hate to word, use the word crisis, right? Because right. the the, yeah. the refugees are not the crisis. It's the displacement and medical projects that they're that they're escaping from that are the crisis. Um, but but uh, all in that to say that uh, that yeah, this is a a broader uh, shift in migration, refugee asylum seeking policies, and that it is being outsourced uh, to a context to Mexico, uh, and a context where, where the state capacity really to to deal with this is not fully operational. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that, you know, it's always tricky and difficult to talk about these things, because we, we run the risk of then, you know, reiterating stereotypes of Corruption and and disorganization in Latin American countries, uh, but but let's face it, the state capacity is not operational uh, either in Mexico or the U.S. for that matter, and that's why they're trying to outsource it.
0: Well, you know the the other I asked about the uh, this particular um, you know safe third country policy because um, you know if. If migrating folks don't apply for asylum in the in which the country they are traversing or travel traveling through, and they make it here to the United States, my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong with the biden administration's kind of expansion if you will of title uh, 42 or reinterpretation of applying it is that people will be deported or ex- expeditiously removed if you will if they legally don't apply for asylum in the country that they traveled through first and so is, is if is that true is that your understanding
1: well, yeah, I mean currently that's that's um the most recent proposal by uh, um with this guy uh, Mallorca mm-hmm. is that th- while they'll be taking in 30,000 uh from each of uh I believe they named about four or five countries mm-hmm. uh they'll be also removing 30,000 right so right. they're trying to to play this number game saying that it'll still be at net zero uh, but the point being that they're still removing people to back to dangerous situations that they're escaping from, right? Or or trying to escape from. And and at the same time, I mean, the countries that are uh, were named, you know, in the case of Honduras and uh, I think Salvador, El Salvador was in it. Um, the other two were Nicaragua and Venezuela. Mm. I mean, uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela, uh, we know have. Uh, very different political situations and, and increasingly more complicated in the case of Nicaragua, in terms of it formerly being a leftist country, but uh, hard to really call the uh, Ortega regime a leftist uh, country any any longer. Uh, but of course, in the case of Nicaragua and Venezuela, it's really more of a political showcase under this idea that they are these leftist countries and and that that in itself is the problem that people are escaping right so we also need to look critically at why only these select countries Well we still have haitian migrants showing up at the at the border we still have uh, migrants from other countries as well but there's always this um uh, showcasing, if you will, of of uh, what those that are perceived as as enemies of the US on the one hand. And, um, and then in the case of Central America, there's uh, the other Central American countries, um, you know, US culpability is, is at the heart of, of why they're, they're leaving to begin with. So to send people back uh, to these dangerous contexts on the grounds of not having applied. It it really again strikes against the heart of international asylum seeking system to the extent that there is, that it has much of a heart, right? Uh, and I say that in defense of um, uh, human rights, you know, human rights regimes not being uh, respected unless it's politically convenient or expedient to do so.
0: Is it fair to say that? Uh, when the U.S. is immediately, without any sense of uh, due process or in accordance to international law, is violating um, refugees' political rights, and and I'm thinking, you know, of the United States uh, being a signatory and ratifying an international the international treaty uh, under the 1967 protocol relating to the status of refugees, where it forbids nation states from sending people back to places where their lives and rights are threatened. So is it fair to characterize what has transpired or what is transpiring with the Biden administration with refugees being sent back, that the U.S. is violating uh, their not only their their rights but also committing crimes in in international contexts.
1: Uh, yes, I mean both not only the conventions on, on rights of refugees, but when we uh, look at many of who these migrants are, the it's also declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples, right. the right. separation of families. Uh, these are. Uh, even going back to 51 1951 conventions on genocide mm-hmm. i mean the separation the the conscious intentional separation of families does fall um under the genocide conventions mm-hmm. and so these these laws not only um international laws being violated uh, again the question becomes you know uh, what is the enforceability of these laws? Does the UN or any other international body have any actual teeth to enforce any of these laws? And not just international laws. I mean, we could look more more concretely what's been happening in texas and florida with these migrants being sent off by governor avid and desantis to the homes of kamala harris and others these are also domestic uh, uh ch- child trafficking laws that are being broken kidnapping and false imprisonment i mean you uh, the you you could uh, list a whole uh, array of Crimes, both domestic and internationally.
0: And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. Roberto Hernandez. He's providing us a detailed update on the human rights violations committed by the United States government and other nation states on indigenous and non-indigenous peoples migrating into the United States along the U.S.-Mexico border who are seeking either asylum or political refugee status. And now back to the interview. But again, when it comes to, you know, who are these crimes being enacted
1: on, are there, is there even any political will to to think of them and recognize them for the crimes that they are there is no no justice right uh when it comes to to those who are being affected by by these crimes of uh you know not only contravening the the international conventions but um but yeah what what amounts to outright kidnapping and and trafficking even of uh migrants with out there to send without their knowledge into, you know, states like New York, New Jersey, and elsewhere, uh, where they have no business being, because again, many of these aren't even migrants, they're refugee and asylum seekers, which by default is a different uh, categorization and should be dealt with, uh, you know, in in a different manner. And yet, um, you know, we, we have both the federal government you know, uh, violating international treaties and international uh, conventions. And we have state governments violating federal laws in in the process. But yet, uh, you know, the idea that any of these governors or others involved in this might be referred to attorney generals for crimes is, Mm. is, I mean, I, you know, I hate to say it, but rather unlikely.
0: You know, in listening to you and, and just based um, in a prior uh, interview that you and I did, we are talking about indigenous uh, asylum seekers and indigenous political refugees, um, you know, along the U.S. Uh, settler colonial border and families uh, being separated is that the last time we spoke, a a lot of these uh, families um, that were separated, members of the border and customs protection, if you will, they did not have appropriate translators. And so a lot of Indigenous children that were separated from their parents um, were not reconnected back with their parents. And, And I was wondering, is this a is this still true today with this, you know, with what's happening, you know, over the past year or so?
1: Yeah, I I mean, on the one hand, they have um, done a better job of trying to access uh, interpreters. Right. Uh, But I'm sure, you know, there's definitely people who slip through the cracks, right? I mean, they don't, you might have, Uh, I know uh, in the last year or two, there was a big drive, for for example, to recruit um, uh, uh, mom-speaking interpreters. And so you have uh, access to interpreters of languages that are perhaps more broadly spoken, mom being uh, uh, part of the Mayan family of languages, uh, that's in southern Chiapas and Guatemala. But, you know, you have other languages that are not as commonly spoken for which, you know, even, even if they try to find interpreters, uh, you know, might have some difficulty doing so. Uh, so yeah, that continues to, to be a concern, um, not only in terms of interpretation and, uh, language, but, but continued separation of, uh, families, uh, of children from the families of detention with, uh, uh I'm blanking here on the term, but um long uh like uh, detention without a, without an end date in sight. Right. Um right. many of the people we've talked to here in the local detention center in San Diego mm-hmm. the multi Mesa detention center, uh some people there have been in detention uh for years uh, on it and uh and don't have uh, uh dates for when their cases might be heard. Right, uh, so there's also many, many folks lingering in, in the detention centers that, that we we forget about because we're still just looking at the border itself, and those that have made it in and have been put in detention centers, often times spending, you know, anywhere from eight months to we've met people who've been in in the detention centers going on four or five years, uh, and still with no anticipated end date.
0: And I take that's not um, not an uncommon experience uh, where people in detention centers are are held uh, without any sense of of due justice or justice, if you will, where the, they end up being uh, they end up living in detention centers, oftentimes, you know, separated from families and those that they've migrated to the United States, with in in part because um, perhaps their uh, family members fear some uh, you know incarceration if they were to visit their their relatives that have been uh, that are being held for years. Is that uh, fair? Fair to say?
1: Well, one of the things is that uh, again during COVID uh, there was no visitations, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, detention resistance is organization here in the San Diego area. Uh, that works with detainees. And whereas previously they had been doing uh, visitations uh, during the context of COVID, um, there was no visitations allowed. So it's been uh, only through putting money into commissaries, running hotlines uh, uh, that we've been managing to get information from uh, detainees on the inside. Mm. And, um, And so... So one thing is, um, you know, if not only family members can't, can't visit, but also uh, sometimes people don't have family members in the immediate area. Their family members might be in New York, in Pennsylvania, or you know, in uh, far, farther locations, or if they have them at all. Um, and so one other dynamic that detention resistance has uh, been kind of uh, figuring out about using just Mesa as a microcosm, if you will, for things that are likely occurring in other detention centers. But um, increasingly, there's also a hierarchy within the detainees, um, not of detainees against each other, but um, but of the detention center workers often kind of looking to indigenous migrants as more docile and more quiet and therefore putting them to do more intensive labor under the idea that they wouldn't be likely to complain as a someone who has more uh control or dominance of say spanish or maybe some even some english Uh, so we've had stories of uh, some indigenous women being put in these positions of having to be the ones cleaning the detention centers while they themselves are detained, Uh, based on, on, again, not just historic, but contemporary forms of racialization against uh, indigenous communities.
0: I I was thinking of... um... Uh, the film, um, The Infiltrators, right, directed by Christina Barra and mm-hmm. Alex Rivera. You know, as you were, you were sharing that response, and you're you're talking about this kind of politicized, racialized um, exploitation of Indigenous people's bodies. And I was wondering if uh, what you're sharing, if that falls in line with um, what the Office of Refugee uh, Resettlement, which is an office of the Administration for Children and Families under the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and they estimate that nearly 45 percent of asylees and refugees living in the United States have experienced some type of torture. So is that, I was wondering if maybe you could unpack that for us, is that within the context of these detention centers um, or whether they're privately ran and operated or, or even federally operated.
1: I'm, I'm not familiar specifically with, with those numbers I have to say, but, um, uh-huh.
0: but I wonder
1: if to what extent this is a reference to torture in their uh, countries that they're leaving from or in the detention uh-huh. centers. Because, um, uh, However, that being said, right, um, even if we don't use the word torture, have some of these indigenous refugee and asylum seekers been subjected to harsher punishments, more restrictive uh, practices and uh, violent responses from the guards? Um, yes, definitely, uh, there has been a, a clear indication that that they have been on the receiving end of uh um, more harsher treatment um, when when in detention, and uh, particularly private detention, though not exclusively.
0: Well, and I think also too is, and, and maybe this uh, I was trying to get at is that, you know, folks that are leaving their home countries because of the because of the different various types of violence they've experienced or are under the threat of experiences that when they get here to the united states right as asylees or refugees they are met with uh different forms uh, of state violence which just uh would trigger if you will or compound not only the violence but the trauma That the families and the individuals experience and then what are what are the implications then of the compounded violence which is often left out of the conversation
1: yeah and and even just you know the dealing with these these uh people in uniforms who when their experience has been uh traumatizing one you know i mean they are definitely more susceptible whether or not there's a direct explicit violence rising to rising to the levels of torture i mean yeah it's definitely a form of compounded violence that's gonna uh, leave larger or deeper uh, psychological uh, wounds and damage if you will Um, and and that we've definitely seen from the the people we've talked to from the Old time method detention center
0: in coming back to Title Forty Two in the context of talking about you know various forms of violence, um, I know Human Human Rights First. Um, they said they tracked at least uh, thirteen thousand, almost five hundred reports of either murder, torture, kidnapping, rape, and other violent attacks on migrants and asylum seekers blocked in or expelled to Mexico under Title 42 since uh, President Biden took office. And I was wondering, is that consistent with the kind of work uh, that you and others uh, are doing? Or is, is this consistent with what you're seeing and your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. While obviously, here in San Diego, uh, detention resistance is uh, more of a small grassroots effort. And so while we could speak to it, anecdotally, in terms of the cases and both time as a detention center, um, you know, I do think it it speaks volumes to to these larger patterns that are being uh, uncovered elsewhere that uh, there is uh, not only uh, really uh, uh, bad conditions that uh, uh, were from especially during COVID. I mean, we had we had uh, we had a, a major impact, uh, there on, on detainees during COVID. Uh, but beyond COVID, I mean, there are, there has been an ongoing question of, of the institutional violence and, and in terms of the, uh, There's a term, and I apologize, I, I haven't had my coffee this uh, morning yet, uh, but a term that Udara, detention resistance in particular, was using uh, to identify some of these um, conditions inside the detention centers. But all in all, it comes back to this question uh, that even uh, through through the outsourcing to private companies, this is one of the ways that the federal government has tried to clean, clean his hands, wipe his hands clean Mm -hmm. of any responsibility by, you know, putting it on the, on the geo group, putting it on these private companies that are running these detention centers. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, um, the state is still responsible, whether these are privately run facilities or not. And, you know, I, I don't know if, um, uh, the numbers we could say, uh are any worse under Biden than previously uh I mean there has been some really severe cases that have caught the attention of the federal government and forced them to crack
0: down a bit on on some of the private companies and uh enforce um, better conditions to an extent And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. Roberto Hernandez. He's providing us a detailed update on the human rights violations committed by the United States government and other nation states on indigenous and non-indigenous peoples migrating into the United States along the U.S.-Mexico border who are seeking either asylum or political refugee status. And now back to the interview. But uh, we, we did hear from, this was actually, has been now maybe about a year, uh,
1: year and a half ago, there was a group of, I believe, about six or seven uh, detention center workers who had been transferred from other detention centers to Otaimesa and they came out publicly as whistleblowers uh, okay. Condemning the, the practices within all time as a detention center mm-hmm. as far worse than what they had themselves seen in the centers where they previously worked. So, so there's also you know um, variations from say one, one detention center to another, um, but nonetheless, when you have the detention center guards coming out and condemning the the practices. Uh, Then you know we we're in a heap of trouble.
0: And what are some of those um, egregious practices that have happened, and in some cases continue to happen in these detention centers?
1: Yeah. Well, one of them, one that did um, draw a lot of media attention, was uh, early on during the uh, COVID, during the pandemic. You know, um, there was no mask being given unless you. Migrants were being forced to sign deportation orders to be able to receive uh, masks. People were having to use make- makeshift masks out of their own T-shirts and the like. People who were noticeably ill uh, with COVID were not being isolated. So then you had uh, massive spreading uh, outbreaks. Uh, you know, one of the first deaths, uh, COVID-related deaths of detainees, occurred here at the old time as a detention center in, uh san diego you have people being purposely put in to to different uh units despite knowledge of uh, of them likely being affected and so on uh so so these although obviously covid has has uh the covid numbers have dwindled i mean right now we have been looking at a small resurgence and um of it in the last uh, month or two um, we haven't heard uh, as bad as things as bad as they were in the earlier period of COVID. Uh, but but there are still reports of of these conditions uh of mistreatment of uh people being put in isolation uh, that continue to the present day
0: so no free prior and informed consent for medical treatment for indigenous uh, asylees or political refugees
1: yeah um uh, for for yeah, everybody. Of them, yeah. and and, uh, and then the other thing that's unique here to the all uh, time as a detention center is that there is also um detainees from the marshals meaning federal uh federal criminal uh, detainees and there also seems to you know be an attempt to play the marshals detainees against the uh, mm-hmm. asylum-seeking detainees, right, where, right. where they're um, pitted against one another in terms of uh, disparate treatment uh, going towards uh, towards the two.
0: As we uh, start to uh, wrap, wrap up um, our interview, I was wondering When we come back and talk about you know the work that you're doing and others and you know we're talking about Title forty two just because it's gotten so much media attention and I was wondering like the work that you do like faith based and other humanitarian organizations or legal workers um, that you work with who assist asylum seekers. are, do you find uh, them enduring any kind of violence, um, you know, like being stranded in, in Mexico, for example, and facing threats and attacks, say, like from the cartels or or even the National Guard, for that matter?
1: Uh, well, at least here in San Diego, um, it has happened. Um, it has, uh, although I would say uh, it's maybe dwindled a bit as, as the more recent focus has turned to other border cities. But uh, one of the cases here in San Diego, there was at least uh, 42 people, I believe it was, um, that eventually the ACLU did uh, put in a lawsuit uh, in terms of uh, people that were being lawyers and other uh, sheltered people working in shelters that were crossing the border back and forth. And whenever They would cross into the U.S. They were being uh, sent to secondary, held for hours on end with no logical explanation. But eventually uh, it was uh, unveiled that, that it was a very specific watch list that was being developed by CBP that was targeting lawyers and other activists for doing this work. Um, there, there's been a few cases of people working at shelters, uh, that shelters have been raided by uh, not only authorities, but in some cases, uh, held hostage by cartel members. Mm -hmm. Um, that was, uh, uh, happening, you know, when there was more, uh, attention here in San Diego. So some of that has, has definitely subsided for the most part, uh, but there is still an, uneasiness about it in terms of some of the people doing this work you know uh, whether whether these uh, you know it's if it's happened already once before uh, it was to stop it from happening again right? Um, right. so so people that would uh, more regularly cross back and forth
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, have definitely stepped back on that I I personally know some friends and colleagues who um, we're working as uh, attorneys supporting many of these asylum seekers who have also suffered not physical violence, but outright mental and psychological exhaustion to the mm-hmm. point that they've had to leave this work um, because of how not only draining, but, but uh, seemingly endless, and especially when you have the constant um you know, changing of of the rules of the game, so to speak. This mm-hmm. back and forth on yes, Title 42, no, five, Title 42. I mean, it, it's exhausting and to, and mentally draining. So, so I know um, many lawyers that have quite literally decided to just take uh, a year, two years, three years break now from from doing this type of work because it has been uh, difficult to sustain.
0: You talked about, you know, just the work that allies are, are, are doing and, and trying to do and, and and certainly, you know, the American mass media, you know, uses very xenophobic uh, terminology and and phrasing, right, from, as you mentioned earlier, crisis at the border, or using words like surge, flood, wave, invasion. Uh, I mean, if you watch Fox News, you just sound like there's an invasion happening that's been happening, you know, every day for years. And, and and lost in all that are the the people doing the work like yourselves and other allies but also you know it, the people these asylum seekers and political refugees right is the fact that these are real human beings and that and that gets lost in a lot of the American mass media coverage and I was going to say is that a a fair kind of uh, sanitized characterization and then maybe just uh, wrap up by talking (laughs) about the work that detention resistance has been and continues to do and and if you have a website or any information you want to provide listeners please provide that
1: uh yeah well um I mean I think on the one hand uh, you know, all the characterizations that you mentioned, um, but even uh, one that I think is uh, perhaps a little bit more benign, but equally, if not more damaging, is the uh, continuing insistence on referring to, to these folks as illegal aliens, right? Um, when uh, not only, you know, it's a term in itself a problem, but many of these uh, folks do not qualify under You know, being uh, undocumented migrants, right? To to put it uh, more properly, uh, these are not even undocumented migrants. These are asylum seekers, refugees, uh, for which there exists a different set of rules than than would for a migrant, documented or undocumented. And yet, there's this insistence on uh, referring to them in the same manner and in a derogatory manner with the term. Uh, illegal aliens. So we, we're still seeing a lot of of that playing out. And here, in, um, in just to conclude with, um, you know, the work with detention resistance, I've been on the peripheries of detention resistance, uh, was more directly involved with it earlier on and, and now continue to be on the peripheries and supporting their work. Um, but they continue to, uh, do the work of commissary running hotlines, um, and just recently, COVID restrictions were finally lifted in terms of visitations uh, so at all time as a detention centers, as of about a month ago I believe uh, visitations are now able to happen again so I believe they're, they're uh, starting to get back to the work of trying to be physically at the detention center uh, taking testimonies from uh, these uh, detainees uh, more directly in order to continue the work of documenting the, the types of uh, conditions that, that they're being held under, uh, and where possible trying to do the work of, uh, connecting them with, uh, uh with family members and with legal support, um, detention resistance, more information will be found, at detentionresistance.org. Um, there are entirely grassroots, uh, donation based volunteer, all volunteer group uh, uh, primarily women who involved with uh, running the, the group and, and uh, have been consistent through and through uh, now you know going over five years strong The moment of
0: silence is over. <laughs> And that was Dr. Roberto Hernandez, Associate Professor of Chicano Chicano Studies at San Diego State University, who is speaking on a variety of issues ranging from how the federal Title 42 program is being used to expel indigenous and non-indigenous asylees and political refugees, plus a lot more. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Dr. Roberto Hernandez. A special thank you to our musical guests, Aragon Star, Kupa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California, from Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time.
1: And for the innocent you can't justify Why your freedom manifests
0: on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains
1: War that never ended
0: We've outgrown your lives Let our actions speak When they ignore our words For all the lies There's a truth that must be heard
1: against our fears try not to become what we've endured wearing our souls on the thread the moment of silence is over